Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. These are not necessarily happy times in the journalism business. Um, yesterday, Bell laid off a bunch of people, uh, some of whom are well-known journalists across this country, others who work in the background, but very important. Um, Mohawk's college's journalism program announced that it's not going to be taking in a new class next year because there just aren't the jobs available now. I'm reading uh, from uh, a report that says so far in 2023, 17,000 journalism jobs gone in the United States. It is, as I say, it's, these are not happy numbers. And so when I bring in my, uh, my boss as the editor of The Spectator, I usually like to talk about nice things like how great his last column was or something. But today with Paul Burton, editor-in-chief, it's, uh, I can't suck up today, Paul. I mean, it's, uh, this is, th- these are not happy numbers. Is, is journalism dead, dying? Where is it? I think that, uh, yeah, I think the traditional journalism uh, as we understand it and have understood it for for most of the 20th century is is certainly dying and will die but i don't think uh i don't think journalism itself is going to go anywhere and we've seen its various incarnations not necessarily all of them successful in the 21st century um you know for example um BuzzFeed and Vice, just to add to the right. woes. I mean, they were considered the, you know, the 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 the, the great white hopes uh, not so long ago. In you know, as recently as 2015, and now they they too are in financial trouble and have been unable to find a to find a, a model that will work for them. So. And I, and I forgot, I, in the intro, I forgot The Athletic this week also laid off a number of people as well. So, I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it's everywhere. And is this just, you know, when, when you say that journalism will always be there in some form, is it just that the business model has changed dramatically and that's the problem, that there will always be people doing journalism, it's just it may not be a financially viable kind of thing? Like, who, who would do it then if there's no financial, yeah. you know, economic benefit? I, I believe that... that humanity will find a way of making money at it. Uh, the, the unfortunate thing is that it may take a while, and in the interim, we'll, we, we won't know what we're missing. And this is my, my greatest concern, is that people uh, in a town like Hamilton, for example, take it for granted that there are people out there watching, uh, you know, watching, uh, watching what's being done at, at City Hall or at government or at in big business and, and making sure that, uh, you know, it, it's not all uh, opaque. But um, I think that in, in future, someone will figure out how to make money at it, but obviously not yet. But in the meantime, one of the things that's happening everywhere, it seems, is that as there are fewer journalists, companies, uh, politicians, sports franchises, everyone, they're bringing the storytelling into their own operation. So there's stuff out there. The difference is it's not remotely objective in any way. You're seeing stories, but when you read it, you may or may not be thinking, oh, that's paid for by the people who are trying to tell a particular story. It's not the same. Yeah, well, as most journalists will tell you, there are still lots of jobs out there for PR people who are are telling the telling the stories that you're talking about so uh, absolutely true and 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 perhaps even worse um 
you know, there's, there's, there are, there are all kinds of ways to get news. As everyone knows, this is the problem with uh, legacy media. Uh, people are finding other ways to acquire the same kind of information or what they think is the same kind of information. It just doesn't happen to be as reliable or, or as uh, responsible or as even ethical as, as it has in the past, perhaps. Do you see a day coming when, um, I mean, one of the criticisms, Paul, and you've heard this, I've heard this, we've all heard this. One of the criticisms is, is now that, you know, the government pays for grants for different news organizations. The government pays for the CBC, a lot of it. Do you see a day coming when all the news is going to be paid for by the government? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think that's a good model. I, I, I like to think uh, that, that there, there are enough rich people in the world who believe in journalism, uh, whether or not they like it or not, but believe in it. Like, <clears throat> say, Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post or maybe the, mod, the charity model that the Guardian in, in England uses. I, I, I believe that there are enough people in the world to make journalism happen uh, as you say, in the interim, until a, a better business model or a newer business model is figured out. Do you see a reboot then? Because, I mean, especially on television, more than any other place, you start when people, sometimes we hear the salaries that are paid to people who are involved in that kind of journalism, and they are extraordinary. I mean, they're enormous and then when those places struggle, I mean, do you see a day coming when it goes back to being not necessarily a rich person's game for some of these things? Well, I mean, the newspaper business until recently has been, not for journalists, obviously, as you well know, but for the owners of media organizations have done very, very well indeed for the last more than 100 years. I mean... <clears throat> Um, and so they've been able to afford to pay for superstars, I guess, uh, occasionally. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I think that journalism requires a, a, a fair bit of education and smarts and sort of worldliness. And so those people aren't going to come cheap. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Obviously, uh, journalists are being paid less relative to the cost of living than they were uh, decades ago, but I don't know how long that can last. Yeah, and I, and I wonder, I mean, this story this week about Mohawk College, now it's just one college, there's lots of colleges that still offer journalism, there's universities that still do, but I don't know if this is foreshadowing of what might come. If if now the idea is don't go into it because there's not going to be jobs, uh, you know, you start to you start to send another message too about what the future of it is. Yeah, for sure, and, and, but, and that's always been a problem. It was a problem when I was at uh, journalism school a long time ago, uh, but uh, most of my colleagues did not actually, m most of my fellow students in journalism school did not go into journalism. I don't know what it was like for you, Scott, but they didn't go into journalism. That, but what they did get was a journalism education, and a journalism education is a pretty useful thing, uh, even if you're not going into the yeah. business. <laughs> yeah, just look on the sunshine list every year, and you'll find some of those <laughs> classmates probably there <laughs> making a lot more doing PR than they would have if they stuck around and doing the dark arts in journalism. Absolutely, that is uh, that is true. Uh, that is Paul Burton. He's the editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
There are laws in this country that we all agree with, and there are laws that we maybe don't agree with. And then there are those that you are going to find some controversy around because some people think they should be there, some think they shouldn't. And, um, well, we're going to talk about one of those right now because apparently, and I didn't realize this, because uh, maybe because I haven't thought about it in a number of years, but it is still legal in this country to spank a child. Though some are now pushing that it is time for that law to be changed. Uh, and I'm sure that some people listening right now are in favor of that, and others are mortified by the idea that that still exists. Uh, Dr. Anzella, uh, Andrea Gonzalez is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. She had written a piece not long ago under the headline on The Conversation, which is an online um, website, Time to Abolish the Canadian Law that Allows Adults to Spank and Hit Children. She joins me now. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much, Scott. I don't know that people think about this as being a law or legal or not a law or not legal, a lot of them, because I think a lot of people have always just assumed it's always been done. It's always been allowed. Maybe not always done. It's always been allowed. So it's sort of just there. Do you think most people think of this in terms of legal issues? I, I, I don't think so. I think probably people are similar to what you were just describing in your intro, surprised, um, well, that there's a, a criminal code act that still permits it on the one hand, but that um, really, I think that, that it's sort of acceptable. I think um, most people think spanking isn't an issue, but we know um, both from international data as well as Canadian data, although it's not as comprehensive, that there's still a high proportion of um, caregivers and, and parents that use spanking as a, as a form of discipline. And I think what perhaps people aren't as aware of, um, and, and what we're hoping with, if, if they do abolish uh, Section 43 of the Criminal Code, which is the the spanking uh, or corporal punishment um, kind of protection uh, law is that we can increase awareness and increase awareness about the harm that's associated uh, with corporal punishment and including spanking. And I think most people think of spanking um, a child as a, a relatively minor infraction, um, but we now know from decades of research um, how harmful it really is. And that's why I think there's a, a movement now to to try to get rid of it. All right, let's go right there that you just mentioned, because I think there are a lot of people, probably a lot of people listening who say it. it's just, if you don't abuse your kid, if you don't beat your kid senseless, if you don't use a belt, a smack on the bum is not the worst thing in the world, is not that problematic. Would you argue that's not the case? Yeah. I, I would definitely suggest uh, that that is not the case and that we now have quite a substantial uh, amount of research to support that. Um, you know, there there was a meta-analysis, which is essentially a, a, a study that looks across many different studies, sort of collating and aggregating all the research that's out there, um, which looked specifically at spanking as a, a form of discipline, trying to tease out, you know, those sort of more harmful or, uh, you know, I guess more aggressive acts like hitting with an object um, 
And what they found is that there's still a, a clear association between um, spanking and a, a whole host of negative outcomes, um, including mental health, you know, issues later on in life, increased uh, substance use, um, increased suicidal thoughts and attempts, increased antisocial behavior, and increased, you know, aggression um, towards other individuals, including intimate partner um, relationships later in life. And this isn't like a we can't say it's causation because we don't have that kind of data. Um, but, you know, the, there are very clear associations between spanking and childhood and um, negative outcomes later in life. Let me, it gets tricky uh, only because of this for, for a long time. And I think you would probably agree with this for a long time, for generations, it was considered just part of parenting that you would spank your children. So when we're looking at these causations that we're talking about of mental health or partner violence or whatever else that are happening now, we don't see, I don't think, do we, the enormous numbers of those in previous generations when kids were being spanked. So what has changed maybe that, you know, three generations ago, four generations ago, kids who were spanked didn't automatically necessarily have those mental health issues or whatever. But today, kids who are being spanked, were seeing that kind of result. I wouldn't say it's um, like past versus present. So I think, first of all, again, it's not causation. So we can't say spanking has caused all of these okay. Um, okay. because there's just no data to do that, to support that. Like, but we, what we can say is if we look at spanking in childhood, there isn't an, an increased risk of these negative outcomes later on. Um, and we know that from older data as well, like older generations um, who have to retrospectively uh, report on their childhood experiences, as well as, as newer data. Um, I think spanking as a form of discipline was probably more commonly used, um, you know, a few decades ago, even um, in the 70s, which is when I was born. Um, but we don't we, and we we know that spanking as a form of discipline is on the decline, but um, you know it 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 should we should still work towards increasing awareness um, about the negative potential effects and and the associations that we know, and also be putting supports in place for parents and caregivers um, that are struggling. So and and perhaps need um, alternative strategies to help them with their parenting, um, with their parenting discipline strategies. Right, because I mean, a lot of people, and I think again, you would probably acknowledge this. There are a lot of people who now would look and say, "Look, kids today," and that's what a phrase. Kids today, we all sound like old people when we say that, but are, don't have the discipline or don't have the respect or whatever else, and so we need to do something. You're arguing though this is not the thing to do to try and bring that back if in fact that's the case. Absolutely. I mean, what we do know is that kids it, it, kids don't learn from spanking. What they learn is fear mm. um, and, you know, perhaps embarrassment and um, being ashamed, but it's not like they're learning a lesson from being spanked. So it's, it, I, I don't see any positive value in it. I mean, I think it is a form that, um, People know either because, you know, it they learned it in their own childhood or 
um, sometimes. And, and although the Supreme Court clearly said that it shouldn't be used in anger or frustration, we know that those are instances mm. where spanking is most likely to, to take place. So it's really providing um, caregivers with really information about and an awareness of the negative impacts of spanking, but also alternatives that will help um, provide more healthy kind of discipline strategies for children, like by giving them boundaries and limits, um, you know, to kind of also help shape their behavior, which I think is what you were kind of talking sure, about Scott, sure. when we talk about the kids these yeah. days. And, and and we're very short on time, so I, I, I hate to hurry you along here, but are we seeing this same discussion happening all over the world? Or is this a North American discussion? Or is this a Western world discussion? Or is this a worldwide discussion? Do we know? So this is a, a worldwide discussion. And the um, United Nations Committee on the Rights of uh, the Child has really um, encouraged countries to uh, ban Spanking and 65 countries to date around the world have banned corporal punishment. Um, and unfortunately, Canada is not one of them, even though we have ratified uh, the UN uh, rights of the child. Um, so it's it's sort of mind boggling to me, at least why, um, I, you know, at, we're at this point in this discussion. Like, I think that we should be really abolishing section 43 and really really having a, a much better conversation about how can we support parents and caregivers in different ways um providing them alternate strategies different programs and services uh and really increasing awareness uh and that push by the way there is uh, it's not just you there's a in the canadian journal of psychiatry there's a new push to have this changed and uh others as well. Uh, Dr. Andrea Gonzalez from McMaster, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we've been saying through the show today, tomorrow is going to be a, a, a big day for Canada, for this country. Because tomorrow, according to StatsCan and others that you know keep track of these things and do the averages and everything else, tomorrow around 3 p.m., we are going to have our 40 millionth Canadian, 40 million Canadians, which, you know, for someone like me who grew up in the seventies and eighties, I mean, the 40 million was a long, long way off. We were, we were a country of 30 million for most of my life. It seems that was the number that was always, you know, said or 30 million was Canadians. You look at the States, which was 300 million. We were a 10th the size of the States. We're, we're, we're not that anymore. So there are absolutely great things that come from having more and more people in this country, from bringing immigrants in from other parts of the world. They bring things, they, they contribute lots of things. There also will be some challenges with this. I want to bring in Dr. Usha George. She is a professor, and, excuse me, and she's the academic director of the Toronto Metropolitan Centre for Immigration and Settlement. Joins us now, Dr. George, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you along. Yeah. And as I say, I, I don't know if you have the same thought that it doesn't seem that long ago that 30 million was just a number. 40 million, it, it seems all of a sudden like such a very large number to talk about as Canadians. Yeah, I, I agree because even at the time of the census 2021, we were talking about 38 million. 
Yes, we've we've grown fast for sure. We have grown fast, and and I mean, if you go back to when I was very young and like 1970, it's about 20. I mean, we've doubled in 50 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm an immigrant at the time when I came. We were talking about 27 million, 28 million. Yeah. Which is like almost 30 years ago. Yeah. No, it, we, we are growing quickly and going up faster and faster. The numbers last year, we had a million immigrants come in. So so you you work in immigrate the Toronto Metropolitan Centre for Immigration and Settlement. Tell me, and I know there are lots, but pick one or two. From your perspective, the one or two best benefits to Canada to having growing immigration and hitting now 40 million bolstered largely in a big way by immigration. What are the, in your mind, the one or two best things that does for the country? Two best things in my opinion, which uh, most people would agree is what is called the demographic dividend. In other words, our birth rates are, you know, uh, shockingly low. Our uh, uh, senior population, uh, sorry, our lifespan is much higher than many other developing countries. Um, uh, and as a result of that, uh, we we do not have the kind of population that's required. The, you know, you call it the dependency ratio is very high. And then we do not have the enough of the labor force in order to provide for the social benefits of, uh, you know, seniors. Uh, we don't have enough children to kind of take that place. So in other words, a demographic dividend is what we get from increased levels of migration. So before you tell me the second thing, just before you, let's talk about this for a sec, before you get to the second one, essentially what you're saying is if we didn't have this kind of immigration, things like Canada pension and our health care and all of those kind of things eventually would collapse because we don't have the people working enough of them to support those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, what would be the um, second thing? Among the G7 countries, we have the highest levels of my immigration. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is that Canadian immigration policy is a very tightly managed, uh, what do I say, business. Um, we do not uh, allow anybody to come in. We have three classes of my immigrants. And the majority of the people who are coming in are in what is called the economic class. And they are selected for the very purpose of filling in the skill uh, deficiencies or deficits within the economy. And uh, therefore, uh, immigrants bring an enormous level of uh, skills that are required for the labor force in Canada. We have a skill shortage, which is actually found in many European countries. But we have the advantage of people wanting to come here. Uh, so we go through a, a very tight system where we allow people who want uh, to come here to be screened very well. And we also have what's called a decentralized type of migration, immigration policy, which is the provinces have some voice in who they want to have. The trade unions can make a case. You know, at some point we were even talking about the municipalities actually making a case. So, in other words, it's a buy-in from the general population, political parties, you know, trade unions, uh, provinces, uh, you know, to immigration because they know and they understand that it is going to fill the gaps in the skills uh, set of the labor force in, in, in their provinces, so to speak. So... The summary of what I'm saying is that 
immigrants bring economic benefits to Canada. Would I be correct that still, even in 2023, the majority of people who come settle in our big cities? Is that still true? Uh, yes, and I would also like to immediately add, uh, maybe no, because we have reached the stage where MTV is attractive but not affordable. Mm. Uh, MTV is the Montreal, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, uh, you know, combination. Uh, housing prices in all of these places are enormously high, even though we would say that, you know, most of the work is there. So we do have a problem in terms of our, our distribution of population, distribution of immigrants who are coming in. But we saw that when Alberta's um, uh, oil boom was happening, many people went there. Literally, we had a flow from Ontario to Alberta. So immigrants are not necessarily sort of stuck to a place because they know the place. They are also extremely careful in selecting where they want to stay. Uh, it's basically it's employment that is their guiding principle. And of course, employment itself by uh, by itself is not guaranteeing um, a good housing outcome for them. So they also look for areas it affordable. And when, um, yes, and when you talk about that, I, I think it was in the Toronto Star this week. I may have the wrong paper, but there was a story about how there are now an, some immigrants, people who have come here to settle and realize it's not quite the dream because it's just so darn expensive. They can't, they can't make the life they wanted. Now they're looking to go home. So that, that I would think in a lot of cases would be a big city problem, that MTV you're talking about. Right. Yeah. So, you know, return migration has always been uh, there, but I think, um, especially as, 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 you know, after COVID, for example, a lot of people who are within Canada got their, uh, you know, permanent residencies and many people kind of debate. And one phenomenon that we find is that those people who are coming from the Middle East and getting their PR sometimes leave their uh, sort of their families here, their wives and children, and then they go back to Middle East because they cannot get a job similar to what they were doing in Canada. So that's a process that has been happening. And, you know, the, the, the magnitude of that changes from time to time, but that, that's, that's there as well. You know, we used to talk about astronaut families in the case of the Chinese at some point, but this is, this also is true. Is that something that if, if someone was coming here, you came you came to this country, as you talked about, is that something that people expect when they come to Canada? Do they know when they're coming here, do you think? And I mean, look, we don't want to broaden or generalize too much. Everyone's different, I understand. But when people come here, you know, we always hear people talk about the American dream. I'll go to the States and I'll become rich. I think it's probably the same here. Do they know how difficult sometimes it is to get jobs here or how expensive it is to live here before they arrive? Yes and no. Some people really do good research before they come here and they are coming here to face whatever it is. Um, a long time ago, we used to uh, to sort of, um, what do I say, uh, suggest um, uh, programs that are pre-arrival programs back in their home country so that they know what they're getting into. Um, many people come here think, knowing fully well that, um, yeah, it is a, it's, it's a hard or, you know, sort of hard work to actually find the job. And then we also have, uh, except for people who are coming here with a job offer, which is not a lot of them, but many of them. And that for that, they get very high points. So it's easy for them to come in literally. Um, so otherwise, people know that when they come here, 
they, they know two things. One, they may not be able to practice their previous profession, the profession they came with, whether you are a medical doctor or an engineer or a or a nurse or, or uh, you know, a number of dentists or uh, many of these are called regulated professions. They cannot immediately jump into those professions. They have to go through a very long process of accreditation and writing their exams and so on. So they, they do know that uh, most, prob most of the time. And they also know that the salary they make may not be enough to buy a decent enough housing uh, house uh, for for their for themselves. So uh, these two things most people know by now. But I think sometimes the intensity of it hits them um, when they come here. Having said that, I would also argue that people come not necessarily for themselves. They also they say, okay, I'll go through whatever it is that I have to go through. But my children's future ah. uh, is is uh, safe. Yeah. Do we do we do? I know this is something that has been talked about a lot. But do we do a good enough job, or should we? Be, how could we do a better job? Maybe is the way of saying it of facilitating those work. So if someone comes here as a doctor, uh, I think that every Canadian would say, "Look, I don't want to have someone who comes from somewhere else just pick up their practice because we don't necessarily know what their training <laughs> was." I think that's reasonable, but do we do a good enough job at creating a pathway where we can test them, and then if they are good at what they do and if they are properly trained, by all means, let's get you into your work. Do we do that well enough? Exactly. So that you know, many people feel very, very frustrated with the professional associations uh, uh, that kind of make all kinds of demands. Um, uh, you know, some of them are seen as kind of totally unnecessary, but most of it is kind of you need that in order to have, you know, a, a solid uh, sort of a person who knows what he or she is doing. So um, there are uh, uh, there are impediments to uh, getting accredited for many of these professions. And I just want to, I, I, this is not to say that you have to lower the standards. I want to give an example. IT is one field where there is no professional association controlling access to the profession. Majority of the people who come with their IT degrees get a job. From there, they, you know, get a better job, they get a better job. So there is always that opening uh, that kind of mobility there, upward mobility in the IT profession. There is entry as well as upward mobility. But for the other ones, you know, we have heard the stories of Edra, you know, cab driver who is a doctor and, right, an right. and all that stuff. It does happen. But you see, mainly what happens is that when people come here, you know, of course, they are just supposed to bring one year's rent and all, you know, living expenses and all of that. That can run out very fast. And so then they have to sustain their families. And many of them would say, okay, let me do this job. And then, oh, you know, by on the side, I will do, I'll study this and I'll do this and do that. But a lot of times it doesn't happen. But, uh, you know, some other professions have got bridging programs. You know, the bridging program for the internationally educated social workers, for example, which uh, we have at our university, is a very successful program where internationally educated social workers come and take a year's course, and then they are put on, uh, you know, uh, sort of a placement, and the placement is supervised. When all of that is done, 
they actually get jobs. So uh, I recently went to a meeting of internationally educated social workers from my tiny state in India, which is Kerala. There were 400 people. Uh, and and this that's not all the numbers. You know, they started off five years ago with uh, 50 people. So all I'm saying is that when there are successful bridging programs uh, to uh, facilitate the transition to Canadian labor market, there is a lot more uh, that can be achieved. Yeah. But we also recognize that even Canadian uh, graduates of medical schools are finding it hard to find residency places. Some yeah. of them go to the U.S. for that matter. And I don't think that we, I don't think, any. you touched on it a second ago, I don't think anybody wants to see the standards lowered, but right. I think that most of us would say, look, if we are bringing people here, as you've said a few moments ago, because they bring something to the country, because they are trained or whatever, by all means, let's find a way. If we, we're short of doctors, if we have doctors who are close to or capable of working, let's test them. Let's find right. out if they can do it and let's get them working. Yeah, and it's interestingly enough, during COVID, we heard different kinds of conversation. Or oh, maybe we can allow the foreign doctors to do this mm. and that and the other in the hospitals. Or we can, you know, uh, think of the nurses who are for internationally trained to come and do this, that and the other. So there is a little bit of an understanding around some flexibility that is required to sort of enhance the capacity of these individuals to work in their professions. But of course, that's, we have a long way to go. Yeah. And if we're now talking as in tomorrow, 40 million people, that means we need more doctors, more social workers, more this, more that. We, yes. we, it, yes. it's, it seems to make no sense to bring all these people here and then say, you can't work, even though that's why we're bringing you here. Um, let, let me go to the other thing that always gets talked about. And I think fairly, I don't think, you know, none of this stuff, I don't, I mean, there's people who are going to be xenophobic, but I don't think that's what we're being here. The, the issue of housing is really something that is a problem anyway in this country, in this province. Mm -hmm. And now we're bringing many more people to the country. It's make, it's got to be a challenge for them when they come here because they have to find housing. And what do we do? Is, is there any kind of answer to this that no can be answers. simply done? We have to build more affordable housing. We are not talking about low income uh, you know, people who are under the poverty level, we are talking about average houses that people can afford to buy. Of course, most people take a mortgage and then buy the house, but something that they can even look at and say, hmm, I think I can afford that. So yeah, we have to build more housing. There's no question about that. Because again, I can't imagine, um, no matter where you're coming from in the world, I mean, I've traveled, you've traveled, you know something about other countries, but I can't imagine that many or most of the people coming here have a real concept of, of especially housing, how crazy the prices is for housing here. Yeah, you're right. To totally right about that. Yeah. And you yeah. get here and as you say, you have a month or two of your rent and then it's like, or a year or two of rent and then it's like, oh boy, what do I do now? I mean, yeah. it is, um, yeah. it's fascinating. 40 million people tomorrow will be the number that, uh, that yeah, Canada will be. I know, it's, um, I know. But one thing that we, we I don't know whether I, I can, I didn't answer also, but I don't want to leave this without sure. saying that. Whatever jobs they pick up, you know, immigrants on the whole enhance our economic situation. Um, even if you take uh, uh, new businesses that are started, it is immigrants who are, who mostly start majority of these new businesses. 
whether they are uh, frustrated about not able to jo be joining their own profession, they contribute in significant way to the economic growth of the country. So, because as I said, these are all people who are highly educated. So there was a there was a pattern at some point, or there was an argument at some point okay. saying, you know, human resources is all we need, and people will figure out what to work, where to work, all of that. You know, it is not necessary that a doctor has to be a doctor here. You know, that's of course, you know, somebody will definitely be not happy to hear that but the point is still that we bring in economic uh, immigrants who have got high levels of uh, human uh, and other kinds of resource capital yeah Dr. Usha George uh, from Toronto Metropolitan University and the director of Toronto Metropolitan Center for Immigration and Settlement. I really appreciate you taking time to talk about this today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.